be famous or invisible? Invisible! Why invisible? Because I would be the best hide and seek player. You'd be the best hide and go seek player ever? Yeah. What's so great about being famous? Girls marry you. Girls marry you? Yeah. Hey. Ay, ay, ay. How creepy. <laughs> yeah. It's not complicated. Invisible is better. And fame isn't all it's cracked up to be. You'll find inspiration in The Life of David. Early last month, a funeral home down in New Orleans did something rather unconventional. Instead of throwing a typical service for 53-year-old Miriam Burbank, this funeral home threw her a party at the request of family members. As visitors made their way inside the funeral home, to their surprise, Burbank's body had been positioned upright at a table and by the look of it seemed to be having a really good time. Now, the atmosphere was anything but somber. Disco balls were shining, hip-hop music was playing, and Burbank's daughters made certain their mother was holding a pack of her favorite menthol cigarettes. She was wearing sunglasses and favorite, her favorite gear from her favorite football team, the New Orleans Saints. Now, one lady who attended this funeral party was quoted on a local news station by saying, I felt like she was right there with me the whole time. She just looked so alive. I don't know about you, but it looked like a party that I would die to attend. Uh, come on, quit being so stiff, all right? Now, the more I read up on this, the more I realized that this odd phenomenon takes part in a lot of different funeral homes. A lot of different funeral homes at the request of family members can position the dead in a manner that is true to their passions and their personality whenever they were alive. One guy uh, requested that his body be put on top of his favorite motorcycle. Another man was standing upright at his wake in the boxing ring that he used to work at back when he was in high school. Now the entire intent and purpose of this is to make certain that people, their loved ones, they feel like they're not alone, that they are right there beside them and that they haven't really passed away. Now if you ask me, it's a little bit creepy. I mean, I can't imagine how strange it would be to walk inside a room and see a loved one who has passed away but has been made to look alive. Now really, it's all done in an effort to numb the pain and the reality of death. Now here's what I know. It's possible to have the appearance of life, yet inwardly be dead. I mean, you can know the Bible better than anyone. You can remain faithful to your spouse. You cannot break certain rules. It's totally possible to build a life that points to nothing but spiritual vitality, yet towards God, be empty and dead. You can have people admire your life when at the end of the day, the whole thing is just an illusion. And so here at Crossroads for the next nine weeks, what we want to do is we want to run after what an authentic, life-giving relationship with God really looks like. Instead of just knowing about God, we want to truly know God. Instead of settling for the appearance of a believer, we want to truly run after what following Jesus looks like in all of life's circumstances. Now, we will do this by looking at a guy in the Old Testament by the name of King David. And what I love about David is that he and I have a lot in common. Uh, the Bible says that he was very strong, handsome, and extremely humble. Uh, he's kind of like my long-lost twin brother in that regard. Now, we're calling this series, if you haven't already picked up, Pursuing the Heart of God. And if you're like me, you think, that's great, but what on earth does that mean? 
And so I think it's important that we start out with a common definition. Ken and I, throughout this series, are going to go back to this time and time again. And so here's how we're going to define pursuing the heart of God. It is about knowing and applying God's truth. Now, you can't have one without the other when it comes to running after God's purpose for your life. You can't apply what you don't know, right? And likewise, there's a tendency to believe that all God is after in our life is better theology and more Bible knowledge. And yet that's extremely deceptive because you see maturity as a follower of Jesus is only as deep as your willingness to apply God's truth to your everyday life. You see, knowledge without application leads to fruitless spiritual obesity. The best advice I ever received before heading into Bible college was from my father-in-law who's a preacher. And he said, Patrick, make sure your heart is growing as quickly as your mind. And you see, that's so important because there's this tendency for us to believe that all God is after for in our life is just consuming more information and more knowledge. Another thing that we have to make clear up front is that we don't pursue the heart of God in an effort to earn salvation. That's just religious enslavement that nullifies the grace of God. Rather, Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, God saves you by his grace whenever you believed. And this you can't take credit for, but it is a gift from God. And so let's understand that we pursue the heart of God because we understand that he has first pursued us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there are some Bibles right in front of you. That is our free gift for you. I believe we're gonna, it's on page 202 where we're going to pick up today. Uh, we're going to start out in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, in this chapter, God is running after Israel's next king. Now, at this point in Israel's life, they had a very inconsistent relationship with God. I want you to imagine a high school or college dating relationship where the boyfriend and girlfriend break up, get back together, break up, get back together. How many of you know what I'm talking about in here? Four of you, good, all right. Well, that kind of describes where Israel is at at this particular point. Only they weren't, God wasn't the one breaking up with Israel. Israel was the one breaking up with God. And so after the Lord rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, they settled in the land that had been promised to them for many generations. Now, one would think that such deliverance would evoke affection and produce contentment in people's life, yet like a lot of our stories in here, they were running after the next best thing, and that was a king. Now, that desire was not evil in itself, but the thing is, they wanted this king to serve in place of God in their lives. In other words, God alone wasn't enough for them. And so after Israel makes this request known loud and clear to the prophet Samuel, sadly, this is how how God responds. He says, do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. And so like what God does with us still to this day, there comes a point in our life where he allows the natural effects of rejecting him to just run its course upon our life. Now, God does this out of grace because maybe when we realize that what we've been running after doesn't really satisfy, we will hit rock bottom and then turn to him in brokenness. You ever been there before? I mean, have you ever been running after something in life to a point where you thought it would meet some deep desires of yours only for you to obtain it and for you to realize it wasn't what it was all cracked up to be? In fact, when you walked away from it, it only left you emptier. Maybe it was a boyfriend that you thought would 
satisfy your loneliness. Or maybe it was a job that you thought would meet that deepest desire for significance that you have. Or it could be a car that you thought once you drove it off a lot, it would give you that esteem that you so desperately crave. Pastor and author Tim Keller writes this in one of his books. He says, the main problem of our heart is not so much desires for bad things, but our over-desires for good things, our turning of created good things into God's objects of our worship and service. And so this is the place where Israel is at. Their overzealous heart for a king led them to believe that he alone would fulfill this deep fulfillment that they ultimately were longing after. Now that king would be a guy by the name of Saul, but he wouldn't last too long due to disobedience towards God. And so now God is running after Israel's next king who would ultimately be in alignment with his purpose and his will. Now it's in God running after this next king that we learn something extremely important, and it's this, that God can do the unexpected when we least expect it. God can do the unexpected when we least expect it. And so if you, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and uh, uh, look at verse 1. Here's how the story unfolds. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem, find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? I mean, if Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. Now, God here identifies that the next king of Israel would come from Jesse's family. And so Samuel, he begins this ceremony that would ultimately end with the anointing of Israel's next king. But realize that Samuel had no idea which of Jesse's sons that God would select. Look at verse 5. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, Samuel says. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. Now when Jesse and his sons arrived at the ceremony, I imagine that Samuel locked eyes on the man that he thought God was going to choose to be Israel's next king. I mean, he had the perfect hair. He had the master's degree from IU. He had the trophy wife by his side and a smile fit for a Crest toothpaste commercial. I mean, you wanted to get a selfie with this guy and post it on Instagram, right? And the Bible says that Samuel took one look at Jesse's son Eliab and thought, you know what, there's no doubt that this guy is the next king. But apparently, Samuel was just enamored by his charm because God took one look at him and said, nope, not my guy. Well, at that point, Samuel then looked around the circle of nervous men that was before him. Their knees were shaking. You see, at his call, one of them would instantly climb to the highest position in the entire world, equipped with all the Rolls Royces and Ferraris, lavish swimming pools, choice meat every night for dinner, and it would also guarantee the most stunning bride in all of the land. Samuel had no choice at this point but to pick the next best option. And so after... A seconds of awkward silence, Samuel then says, Abinadab. Well, Abinadab can't believe it. I mean, just as he is about to throw a party and run around in circles, God steps in and he kills the excitement by saying, nope, not my guy either. Well, by this point at the ceremony, everybody is just confused. 
Samuel then pointed his finger to the next high-capacity son, Shemiah. He was uncertain, but taking into account his options, it's what made sense. And to really no surprise at all, for the third time, God says no. Samuel then proceeds to go through all seven sons of Jesse at the time, and God's answer is the exact same. Nope. Not my guy. Now understand that whenever Samuel invited Jesse the father to this ceremony, his immediate reaction was to bring with him his most capable sons. And I mean, really, who could blame him? I mean, these guys made their dad look really good out in public. He would frequently boast about their accolades while at a dinner party. And the truth is, don't we all have that tendency to view people through the lens of worth and potential in our life? Truthfully, these guys would have been great candidates for the show The Bachelorette. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever seen this show in here because church shouldn't be about embarrassing guys, all right? Now, the premise of the show is this, if you've ever seen it. Um, the producers select one single, very attractive, successful girl who is looking for someone to marry in life. The season starts out with 25 eligible guys, bachelors, who are all successful and good-looking and all have it together. And it's their mission and it's their desire to win her heart over and at the end of the season, spend forever with her. Now, on each episode, she is required to vote off at least one of the guys that she doesn't have a connection with. And then by the end of the season, hopefully she has landed on that one special guy that she wants to ultimately marry. Now, you have to understand that the competition on this show between the guys is rather fierce. Each one is just as put together and good-looking and worthy as the one beside them. But do you know what you'll never see on the show? I mean, never will there be a guy on there who only has a high school education or is currently unemployed. Never will there be a guy on there who is balding, crippled, or comes from a dysfunctional family. Why? We'll call it superficial or shallow, but Hollywood is simply exposing how we're all wired. You see, you and I are naturally drawn to and driven by the image of success. And yet when it comes to God selecting Israel's next king, this is the last thing on his mind. You see, God is simply setting himself up to do the unexpected when this nation least expected it. I want you to look at uh, verse 11. The story continues. Then Samuel asked, Are these all the sons that you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse replied. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and watching the goats. What a life. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Translation for Jesse, the father at this point. Let me just save you the time, Samuel. My youngest son is not the one that you're ultimately looking for. That's why I didn't even bother bringing him to this ceremony. Now, this probably wasn't intentional on Jesse's part, but it's in his response to Samuel that we see he had a very limited view of what God can do. The message paraphrase says that Jesse called his son David the runt of the family. I mean, besides, how does sitting in a field watching the sheep and watching the goats all day long prepare you for leading a nation? And so to say the least, David felt overlooked. I mean, he had been ignored by his father and tossed aside by his brothers. I mean, could God really do the unexpected when the nation least expected it? At this point, David lived a very boring life. Every day was the exact same for him. He was to sit in the fields and watch the sheep and watch the goats. He would feed and water them every day. A couple times a year, he was responsible to shear them and breed them. 
He was always responsible to protect them from wild animals. Again, every day was the exact same for him. He would sit in the fields and he would watch the sheep and he would watch the goats. Now, there was nothing glamorous about this job, you have to understand. I mean, being a shepherd boy was kind of like eating dinner at Denny's. I mean, no one ever intends to go there. You just happen to show up at the end of the night because nothing else is available, right? And that kind of describes what the role of being a shepherd boy was at this particular point. And I think David, at this chapter in his life, could identify where a lot of us are at. We feel mundane, and we wonder if we have purpose in this life. And again, isn't that some of our stories? Maybe every day you go to the same job, and you do the same thing over and over and over again. Your boss rarely gives you the time of day, let alone encourages you. Honestly, you feel like all your life consists of is sitting in the fields, watching the sheep, and watching the goats. Maybe you're in your 80s and you look back on your life and you wonder if you ever made a difference. More than that, you question what's next for you. Now, you haven't told anyone yet, but you feel like all your life has consisted of is sitting in the fields, watching the sheep, and watching the goats. Maybe you feel like you're raising the family all by yourself. All day long, you're by yourself because your husband is at work and he leaves you at home with disobedient toddlers, dirty diapers, and constant exhaustion. You haven't voiced this concern out loud, but deep down you wonder if all your day consists of is sitting in the fields, watching the sheep, and watching the goats. Now, because of this perspective that we have through Scripture, we know that David's life is about to make an unexpected turn for the better, for the best. I mean, spoiler alert, he's about to be anointed king. Yet we can't just casually skip over this chapter of his life. Take a look at uh, verse 12. Here's what we read. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. And so as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Now never in a million years did David dream of being Israel's next king. All he knew to do was to stay focused on the task that was before him, standing in the fields, watching the sheep, and watching the goats. Now, God did the unexpected when he least expected it. And the reality is God is still in the business of doing this today. He still specializes in it. But maybe you're here and you're thinking, you know what, that's great. But what does God want, what does God want me to know during my time of obscurity? I mean, I just feel so overlooked in life. What does God want to teach me? I love what... Uh, Author John Ortberg writes in one of his books, The Me I Want to Be, he says, God isn't at work producing the circumstances that you want. God is at work in the bad circumstances producing the you that he wants. Now, my experience has been is that sometimes when God seems to be the furthest is when he is, close, is closest. And so our first takeaway that I want to just throw your way from David's circumstance we learn is this, that God knows what others don't see. God knows what others don't see. Now, in the midst of the process of selecting the king, God tells something, uh, says something to Samuel extremely important. Look at verse 7. If you have your Bibles open, here's what he says. The Lord doesn't see the things the way that you see them. Now, I know this next part isn't going to apply to anybody in this room. So just kind of go with it, okay? Here's what he says. People judge by outward appearance. <laughs> in other words, people judge, judge you by the type of clothes that you wear. Or people judge by the type of car that you drive or how big your home is. 
I think as a society, we've become increasingly accustomed to doing this. Uh, for example, if someone posts something on Facebook or Instagram or something, and it really resonates with you, what do you do if you're scrolling through your newsfeed? You hit the like button. If you really like it, you might comment underneath it. And if you don't like it, you just might make your opinions known loud and clear. And some of you are really good at doing that. <laughs> but you see, that's all external. And so look at what God continues to say. He says, people judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, it is so easy to judge based upon what we see. It's easy to make conclusions based upon image. But what's difficult is determining why someone does something or what's going on within them, what's going on in their life. Now, I want you to realize that one day you're going to stand before a holy, almighty God, and he is going to hold you personally accountable, accountable to how well you lived your life. He's not going to hold your spouse accountable to how well you lived. He's not going to hold your neighbors accountable. He's not going to hold your Sunday school teacher accountable. He will look you in the face and he will ask you about different things that you have done. And if you're like me, that is a very, very sobering thought. And so what I want to do is just ask you some questions with the intent of assessing where you're at with the Lord. I mean, what does God know that maybe others in your life don't particularly see? And you need to understand that I ask myself these questions before asking you and... Um, and they're challenging to say the least. First question is this, do you sometimes serve others with the intention of having them owe you something back? When you have a bad day, do you do something to fill that void, such as you go out shopping, you excessively eat more, or spend longer hours at the office? When you fight with your spouse, do you fantasize about how you wouldn't have those issues if you were with fill in the blank, so and so? If someone were to look at your bank statements for the month, how much of what you spend goes towards kingdom purposes? When was the last time you simply enjoyed your salvation? When was the last time you shared the gospel? Do you find yourself judging other believers based upon certain freedoms that they indulge in or disputable matters that they may see differently than you? When was the last time you laughed so hard you could barely breathe? You know, the Bible says that laughter is like good medicine for the soul and it really reveals joy in your life how about this? If the resurrection of Jesus had not occurred, would your life look any different? And if the Holy Spirit were to be removed from your life, would you even notice? Now I ask these questions with the intent of fostering deeper dependence upon God in your life. I mean, you need him. Confession, if what goes on inside here in my heart and in my mind were to be exposed, I would be rather embarrassed. I'm not proud of everything that I, I think and do and say at times. Yet I rest well knowing that God is more concerned about who we're becoming than what we've done. Now I think sometimes in the church we do a pretty good job of overshadowing the grace of God with works and involvement. And if we're not careful, the subtle message that we can communicate is, you know, do more of this, get involved here and participate in this, go on this trip. And good Christians don't do this, but they do participate in that. And when we do that, we are simply reducing Jesus down to a behavior coach. Rather, maybe what you need to realize today is that it's already done. You know, the last thing that Jesus said on the cross was this, it is finished. And so maybe a better question for you today is this. What are you trying to finish through your good works that Jesus already completed? A lot of us are enslaved to good things, but at the end of the day, what's your motivation? 
Secondly, from this season of David's life, we learned this, that availability is better than competence. And David started out in the fields watching the sheep and watching the goats, and from there was called by King Saul to serve as a harp player in his palace. Now, David did such a good job at this that his next assignment, that Saul told David's father this. He says, please let David remain in my service, for I am very pleased with him. Now, I imagine that it would have been extremely difficult for David to remain focused in the palace when he knew that God had selected him to be the next king, to be the successor. And yet David was resolved to have a spirit of availability in spite of the looming temptation to grab power. Uh, Terry Waggle first came to Crossroads at the beginning of this year and uh, wanting to get connected rather immediately, she attended Starting Point and expressed interest in serving in a specific ministry here at Crossroads. Well, after she attended Starting Point, I followed up with her that next week and uh, just wanted to see where her gifts and where her passions would be best utilized in our body. And at one point in the conversation, she said, you know, Patrick, I just have such a heart for people. I just want to meet them right where they're at in life and help guide them and take them in their next step uh, in their relationship with Jesus. Now, you have to understand that this conversation took place back in February, and it just so happened that night we were having an informational dinner for a new ministry that we're launching, Section Host, and we were going to kind of lay before uh, a few people what we were going to do with the intent of having them jump on board. And so I said, Terry, you know, we're having something tonight here at church. I don't know if you'd be able to attend, but we'd love to have you. I think this ministry will be right up your alley. I then proceeded to tell her that section hosts will be empowered volunteers, ministers to a specific section of people inside the worship center before and after services in the chapel as well. And she said, you know, Patrick, it just so happened that I can clear my calendar. I think I'll be there tonight. Well, Terry showed up. She bought the vision. And since March has just been serving exceptionally well in her role. Two weeks ago, Court and Susan Reinhardt were baptized during our 9 a.m. service. And as I was walking them down these steps here, I just, I paused and I said, guys, I just have to know, what brought you to this point in your life? And without batting an eye, Susan Reinhardt said, you know, it's Terry Waggle. A couple weeks ago, we were really moved by the service and we couldn't leave here without doing something about it. And it just so happened that as we were leaving, Terry Waggle was standing around, shaking some hands, getting to know people, I'll never forget it. She sat down with us. She heard our story, and she challenged us to take that next step of trusting Jesus and going public in our relationship with him through baptism. Now, what I didn't tell you is Court and Susan Reinhardt were baptized on their 40th wedding anniversary. And when we got backstage for them to change clothes and go through all the procedures of baptism, there was an anniversary card waiting for Court and Susan. And do you know who it was from? Terry Waggle. I mean, talk about going the extra mile. You see, this is just a story of someone who understands that God is more impressed with our availability than our competence. You see, he is far more interested in our selflessness than our skills. Now, Terry is extremely humble and would tell you that there's nothing special about her, yet the difference between her and a lot of us in this room is that she has made herself available. Now, God has a good track record of using people like Terry. In Acts chapter 4, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were concerned about how fast the message of Jesus was spreading. And so they arrested Peter and John, who were early church leaders, and he put them on, and put them on trial. Now I want you to notice what the author of Acts says in chapter 4, verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were extraordinary men. No, 
They could see that they had so many gifts and they were so talented. <laughs> no. They could see that they were competent men. No, the Bible says they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. Now you see, that word ordinary is key in this verse because what we walk away from is that availability, not competence, is what God is after in our life. Only he can accomplish something extraordinary like the expansion of his church through someone who is averaged or tossed aside from society. And so perhaps you're frequently ridiculed in the break room for praying before lunch. Or it could be that you're single and you wonder if you'll ever marry. Now wherever you're at, if you're honest, you feel a little bit overlooked and marginalized. And not to question how you legitimately feel. But could it be, could it be that God has allowed these circumstances to cross your path so that you will look up at him and finally say, okay, Lord, I'm done performing. I'm done having this image of a Christian. I give up trying. I surrender and will make myself available to your leading and when you get to that point, maybe, just maybe, God will begin writing your story the way that he wrote David's. You see, God was preparing David. He used the fields in Israel to prepare David for the palace in Jerusalem. And perhaps the greatest distance between your obscurity and divine purpose is simply your availability. Well, lastly, now when you feel overlooked, I want you just to remember this, that God's power is accessible wherever you are. God's power is accessible wherever you are. Take a look again at verse 13. Here's what we read. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Now this olive oil that we see here represented the Lord's presence that would be with David forever. And as we see here in this text, the most frequent adjective to describe the Holy Spirit in Scripture is the word power. In the New Testament, it's where uh, the word comes from, the Greek word dunamos, and it's actually where we get the word dynamite from. Now, having gone through this past weekend, if there's one thing I know about Indiana, it's that we love fireworks, right? <laughs> now, this type of power is greater than you can imagine. And because of Jesus, we have access to it whenever and wherever. And so the question isn't, do you have it? I mean, if you are a follower of Jesus and you, you have surrendered your life to him, the Bible says that you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Rather, the question is, how do you access it? In his book, Fresh Air, Pastor Chris Hodges tells a story about a friend who went swimming one afternoon. They went to a place in a local mountain stream that featured a beautiful 20-foot waterfall with a lagoon below for swimming. There was even a cliff on the opposite side with a ledge that was ideal for jumping off of. And despite hesitations, Hodge's friend mustered up the courage to jump off the ledge into the water below. When he tried to come up, he found himself directly beneath the pounding stream of waterfall. Well, he began to swim harder, but the undertow of the waterfall pulled him right back beneath it. Well, his friend started to panic because he started running out of air. He frantically tried to paddle towards the land, but the current was just too strong for him. I mean, he could hear his friends laughing and talking and carrying on. They hadn't noticed his predicament yet, but he couldn't break the surface. Well, finally, after several minutes, his friend realized that he was going to die. He had completely exhausted himself in the struggle to swim free of the vortex of water created by the falls. And so he stopped swimming, 
and he allowed the water to push him deeper and deeper and deeper. Something unpredictable happened next. After sinking several feet below, his body suddenly shot like a torpedo to the top through the falls. He instantly gasped for air, giving his body needed oxygen. Hodges then says that his friend then realized only when he had completely given up did the undercurrent release him from its grasp. You see, if he had relaxed and floated a little sooner, he wouldn't have exhausted himself and risked drowning. Hodges then writes this. He says, he had to quit working so hard to save himself if he wanted to live. And you see, so often when we encounter ruts in this life, we believe the answer is just to try a little bit harder. And I suppose that that works for a little bit of time. But if you're like me, you just end up exhausting yourself. You see, the power of God is most accessible to those of us who quit swimming and fully surrender every bit of who we are to him. Theologian Karl Barth wrote this. He said, when we are at our wit's end for an answer, then the Holy Spirit can give us an answer. But how can he give us an answer when we are still well supplied with all sorts of answers of our own? In other words, how can we be given new life as a believer if we are still disillusioned into believing that we're alive apart from him? Now, the power of God is not some commodity to buy but he is willing to meet you right now in your obscurity. And so I just have to know as we close here today, how would your life look different if you truly believe that God's power is willing to meet you right now in the midst of your circumstances? I wanna be clear about something. God's power is only made available to those who have trusted in him and fully surrendered their life to him. You know, in Acts chapter two, whenever the disciple Peter preached the gospel for the very first time. It says that the crowd said, okay, we, we trust Jesus, but now what do we do? Peter then replied by saying, okay, turn from your sin, give your life to Jesus, be baptized, and then you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's our invitation today. If you're tired of living a life, having the appearance of a Christian, deep down you know you're dead. If you're tired of swimming, exhausting yourself, and if you're ready to begin a new life in Christ, then our invitation is simple. Surrender your life to Jesus and be baptized and receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we sing this song in just a moment, I'm just gonna ask that you make your way towards a nearby section host. They're wearing red lanyards. They would love to meet you where you're at and just guide you in your next step in a relationship with Jesus. We don't ask you to come to us down front. We're gonna come to you. And so if you have a decision to make, then you do that during this next song. Or if you want to hang around afterwards, we'd be willing to, to talk with you as well. Let's go ahead and stand up. And if you have a decision to make, you make your way towards the section notes. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. God, I know that there are many of us in this room right now who are just exhausting ourselves. Many of us in this room have the, appearance, have the appearance of a Christian, but deep down we're dead. And so God, I'm just grateful that you promised to meet us where we're at. And I'm grateful that you tell us to come to you if we're weary, if we're burdened, and if we need rest. That describes a lot of our stories in here today. And so God, would you, would you just remind us all over again that you have pursued us through the cross of Jesus. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.